you idiot. What a bad take. You need to touch grass and ground yourself. You're woke, you're sus, you're salty, you're ignorant, and you're a wicked pagan. Now, you or those around you have expressed anger, bitterness, and frustration with others in your thoughts. And that anger may even spill over as you throw shade and express things in your words and actions towards others. We live in an angry world. We live in a world that is always pointing the finger at someone else. And so our sermon this morning is entitled, The Call for Unity. And what we come to find out in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus himself has a lot to say about this broken, sinful, and angry world. As with our earlier considerations in Matthew 5, Jesus calls us not to live as those who don't know God, but to live as those who are joyfully following and submitting to the teachings and the kingdom policies of this true king. So our main idea this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ keep short accounts. Now, contrary to the culture around us, which includes us, contrary to the voices of disdain that we see and hear in print, on the news, and social media feeds, contrary to all that, we've been called to live a certain kingdom way. A way that seeks peace with all mankind, even those that we dislike or disagree with. So Jesus, as we've said already in previous sermon, uh, Jesus, he flips our social imaginaries and our norms on their head. And at the beginning of this great sermon, the Beatitudes tell us that true happiness in God's kingdom is found in being needy, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And being men and women of action as we extend mercy, purity, and peace. And the overflow of God shaping, us in, shaping this in us, the overflow of a transformed life by Jesus is a life that, as Jesus wonderfully taught, as Jordan wonderfully taught last week, uh, I'm not saying he's Jesus, as, as Jordan taught us last week, uh, Christ's words, um, that, man, that really threw me off, calling Jordan Jesus. <clears throat> the point is, the overflow of a transformed life is one that's salt and light. That's what Jordan taught last week. A life that is salt and light to an onlooking world. A life that clings to the righteousness of Jesus and lives on mission. That's what we're called to. But here in our passage this morning, we start to see Jesus expound on the law. And he isn't necessarily contrasting himself with the law in the Old Testament and Moses. He's contrasting his teaching with verse 20. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. See, as we read last week, Jesus has come to fulfill the law of God. We see in his earthly life and ministry that he lived and taught this. In this greatest sermon, Jesus comes up on a mountain just as Moses had done so many years before. 
And Jesus raises the standard for this new kingdom living, this kingdom age. And it's begun now with his authority as he came to earth. So would you read with me, please? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Our Lord says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and There, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, this is God's word. And there's a number of just really valuable considerations in these verses, but I'd like to frame them just in three simple categories. Uh, The first is this, we're going to wrestle with this, the law of murder. Now, we'll first carefully look at verses 21 and 22. Now, the ten words of Moses, or you may know them by their nickname, the Ten Commandments, the sixth word or the sixth law given was this in Exodus 20.13. You shall not murder. Okay, got it. See, this law given through Moses and being re-spoken and re-established here by Jesus is one that is actually often used in our culture as a measure of contrast. Okay, okay, I'll admit it. I blew up on my kids, but, I mean, I didn't murder anyone. That's how we use murder. Murder has been and continues to be in our culture understood as the terrible, dark, and evil taking of a life. A life that we understand biblically was made in the image of God. So murder remains a constant reality in a broken and sinful world. Whether it's life taken from the womb, mass shootings and gun deaths, euthanasia or vehicular manslaughter, we'd all admit that murder is not simply wrong, but it's the total opposite of how God created this world and humanity to operate. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have said murder is bad as well. And they, like us, and the rich young ruler of Luke 18, I think, would look at this command to not murder And they would say, I'm innocent. I haven't murdered anyone. I've upheld this law. However, what we are starting to see with Jesus' teaching in this greater sermon is that he is redefining what religious people thought was righteousness. With kingly authority, Jesus says, you have heard it said don't murder, but I'm going to point you to the heart condition behind it. 
God's law is not some mechanical thing that you affirm externally. God's law is something that shapes your heart toward God and toward others. So Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, verse 22, the condition of your angry spirit is the same as murder. And I think Jesus' authoritative words pierce to the heart of the command of do not murder. Verse 22 implicates everyone in this room. Jesus says that our hearts and the words and the thoughts that flow from them are murderous. Now, a couple technical things I'd point out about verse 22. The word insults in your Bible, you may have a translation that says raka. It's a fun word to say. And if you say raka to someone, you'll be answerable to court. Well, uh, some of you may be aware, the New Testament was not written uh, in Hebrew, but, but Greek. And this word is actually an Aramaic word transliterated into Greek. So it's actually the only time the word is used in the entire New Testament. So it's really hard to build kind of a robust theology on one word in one verse. But translators, they gather from context and semantic range that this word is derogatory. It's demeaning, and it's likely some kind of abusive speech in manner. Uh, so it's an insult, our translations say. Now, the second technical note I'd make about this verse is the last phrase we read in verse 22. This idea of being subject or liable to the fire of hell. The word for hell is the word Gehenna. And so it could be more literally read, the Gehenna of fire. And academics point out that Gehenna in Jesus' day was known as a smoldering rubbish heap in the valley outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so what's the point? Jesus is pointing his listeners and us to a very sobering reality this morning. Our derogatory, uncharitable, and insulting thoughts and words will lead us to the smoldering fires of judgment where our evil hearts, words, and actions will burn. He's saying that our internal anger, bitterness, and judgment towards others brings with it the same punishment as those who take away human life in murder. Plain and simple, such language and heart posture murders the soul. So we're all guilty. Now, I've read a, a book a number of years ago and the title of the book was Respectable Sins. Subtitle, Confronting the Sins that We Tolerate. And there's chapters in the book about how we will say murder, wrong, little white lie, bitterness, anger. Well, that's okay. That's okay. As Christians, we tend to take the words of Jesus in these verses very lightly. At least I do. Anger, frustration, irritability, those are just some small respectable sins. Certainly those sins aren't as bad as other sins or other people that you may or I may point to. The confronting reality is that Jesus says our anger is a problem. The anger in your heart, in your thoughts and words, and most certainly your actions. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 he would add to this conversation by saying this. I tell you, 
On the day of judgments, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's sobering. And in our modern day, I would add to that, or apply it rather, this way. Not just every word you speak, but every word you post. Kids, you don't know what this is. There's this thing called Facebook. All the old people have it. There's this thing called Facebook where you'll see older people say and post things in anger, carelessly. Now, you know, I could say the same thing about you guys. Snapchats, tweets, TikToks, you got the same thing going on. Young and old, we will be held accountable for every word that we speak and post. So kids, when you angrily think and speak in ways that dishonor your parents, that's murder. Parents, when you angrily lash out at your children, that's murder. Lead foot grandmas and grandpas, when you shake your fist and yell, you idiot, on Highway 210, that's probably at the the plow trucks this morning, that's murder. When you disparagingly attack someone who is your opposite politically, religiously, socially, that's murder. When you quietly in the recesses of your own mind and heart, when you malign someone made in God's image, that's murder. Brothers and sisters, if we take Jesus' words seriously, we must come to the conclusion that we have broken this law and we do so often. As the late Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, killing does not only mean destroying life physically, It means still more trying to destroy the spirit and the soul. Destroying the person in any shape or form. Is it possible that when we look at murder we see in the world physically, we dismiss the murder that we have and harbor in our own hearts towards others? It's possible. Well, the implications of kingdom living in anger, well, it doesn't stop there. Look with me now, the command of restoration. Not just the law of murder, but the command of restoration. And I get this directly from verses 23 and 24. The law of do not murder has more ramification, Jesus says, than just not taking a physical life and not having a murderous posture towards your fellow man. And we can't listen to the Pharisees of verse 20 who treat the law as some kind of external mechanical requirement that doesn't affect relationships. In Jesus' kingdom policies and directives, he commands his followers to make peace with others. The call for unity has with it always true biblical restoration. We keep short accounts. We confess sin. We deal with our anger towards others. But notice how Jesus takes it even deeper than that in verse 23. Look closely again at verse 23. This phrase, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Whose potential anger is being talked about now? The brother. It seems here that Jesus is saying that the law of do not murder has with it a posture 
not just of our own heart, but the hearts of others. If we are aware of someone else's anger towards us, if we are aware that someone believes there is unresolved conflict and relational mess in the air, if we know that, we are told to leave our spirituality at the door, leave our sacrifices, leave our prayers and worship, and go and be reconciled. This, again, is a hired standard that Jesus is communicating. He's after our hearts and our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And I believe this is what influenced Paul when he wrote this in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. As faithful followers of Christ, we take responsibility for our part of the problem and conflict. Hear me. We don't overlook or dismiss the contribution of others. We don't turn a blind eye to evil or sin. We don't. But we engage in the kingdom way of being poor in spirit. We prayerfully ask the Spirit of God to make plain to us how we might have even unknowingly stirred up anger or fracturing with someone else. So it's been said that the commandment not to kill really means that we should take positive steps to put ourselves right with our brother. The law of Jesus on our life is not merely to be understood negatively. Don't do that. Parents, you got a bad reputation. You do that. We have these laws and these regulations in our home where we say, do not do that. And in the church, we adopt that. We are better known for what we are against than what we are for. Jesus doesn't do that. He says it in a more positive way. In light of the Beatitudes, go. In light of the gospel, go. It's not simply, Christianity isn't simply do not, do not, do not. But in light of Jesus, positively, go. Embrace your brother. So may we follow his example here. But I want to make one more observation of verse 23 and 24 that I think will serve us well. This whole interaction, and really any interaction that I read of Jesus, it often leaves me with more questions. Why is it that Jesus would pull someone out of spiritual and religious worship? Hey, you're praying, you're singing, you're sitting under the word. Someone's going, get up, leave, and go be reconciled. Why would Jesus pull someone out of worship to address anger and disunity among humanity. Now, in my reading this week, I came across a, a category that I didn't have good mental hooks for. It was, it was kind of new to me, so I wanted to share it with you as well. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, specifically about verses 23 and 24. Our Lord enforces that by reminding us in verse 23 and 24 of the very subtle danger in the spiritual life, the danger of trying to atone for our moral failures by balancing evil with good. I think we know something about this. We must plead guilty to it. The danger is that of making certain ceremonial sacrifices to cover up our moral failures. The Pharisees were expert at that. 
And I might add, we probably are too. They went to the temple regularly. They were always punctilious in these matters of details and the minutia of the law. But the whole time, they were judging and condemning their fellows with contempt. They avoided every twinge of conscience by saying, well, after all, I'm worshiping God. I'm taking my gift to the altar. I think I can say again that we all know something about this tendency not to face directly the conviction which the Holy Spirit produces in our heart, but to say to ourselves, well, I'm doing this or that. I'm busily engaged in Christian work. The whole time we are not facing the jealousy we may feel against another Christian worker or something in our personal private life. We are balancing one thing with another, thinking that this good work will make up for my evil heart. In the sight of God, there is no value whatsoever in an act of worship if we harbor a known sin. So let me give you the Twitter summary of that. In summary, what Jones is saying is that there's a real danger in our spiritual lives where we'll put off the anger in our heart and look over it because we say, well, I'm given to the church. Put a few bucks in. I'm serving in Sunday school. I take communion. I come and I sing. And what Jones is saying, Dr. Jones, uh, Martin Lloyd, not Indiana, what, what he's saying is that there's a danger in our lives that we would think very lowly of our anger and champion very highly our external righteousness. That's dangerous. So may the Lord protect us from masking our sinful anger or pushing it aside because we're doing good things in his name. From the Savior's lips, we are to seek restoration. It's the fulfillment of the command to not murder. Well, lastly, I want us to look again and focus on verses 25 and 26 as we consider the urgency of action. There is an appropriate urgency to the Christian life. Of course, it is possible to twist urgency and create unbiblical categories. Some respond to urgency by yelling or condemning or accusing or a cussing. Some respond to urgency in unhealthy ways by functionally denying the sovereignty of God. Because they're convinced that something has to happen and it has to happen now and in their specific way. But setting aside the abuses of urgency, it's clear in these final two verses and in our passage that there is a biblical category for quickness, for obedience, an expectation that we will not simply collect Jesus' teachings as useful information, but we will believe them and actually act upon them. Reading a, a book right now called the, the Hawk and the Dove, and this teenage girl, she speculates. She, she attends a church with her mother, and she says, I don't mind going and hearing the sermons, but just imagine if someone actually lived out what they said. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, not to simply be hearers, but doers. 
So we read the scriptures as faithful followers of Christ, faithful followers who hear the call in our life and then go. And yes, we live the unique lives that God's given us. And we're obedient to what he said. So verse 25, when Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser, we take it quite literally. We don't spiritualize it away. But let me speak for a moment on the very stern language of judgment that Jesus uses in this passage. Because it is shocking how stern uh, this judgment seems to be. But especially in verses 25 and 26, he uses words like court and accuser, judge and prison, and never getting out. And he leaves no question to the severity and the seriousness in which he understands and views our angry hearts towards other people made in his image. And I I think a good and fair question for us to ask and to wrestle with in this moment is, do we feel the demands and the weight of this law, do not murder, and its hard implications of anger? Do we feel it? Does it feel weighty? Do we view our sin the same as Jesus does? No. I mean, at least as a personal confession, I don't. Because it's so easy for me to play this game where I say, well, Jesus, I know you say I'm angry and that's murderous, but you know who the real murderers are? And I'm I'm deflecting. I'm, I'm pointing on someone else. So, are we truly thinking biblically? Or have we allowed the social imaginaries and the norms of our world, what you see online or what you hear out in this world, has that colored how we see anger? Simply, do I view anger the same way God does? For many of us, for me personally, I I think the answer is no. And I have justified and explained away my murderer's heart many times. And Jesus' language of judgment, what it does is it forces the reader, it forces me to take stock, serious stock, of where my heart and life really is. Am I truly following him? Am I clinging to the gospel? Paul Paul summarized this gospel this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So putting it through that frame, I have to ask myself on a Sunday morning, Matt, has the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changed me from the inside out? Or am I simply saying, yeah, I'm following Jesus. Uh, The the country music song that talks about the big guy in the sky, uh, I'll show up on Sunday, I'll carry a Bible with me, I'll even be a pastor. I can do a lot of external things, but I have to ask, have I truly been changed from the inside out? Am I new? Have I been brought from a poverty of spirit to a mourning over my anger? Has that produced a meekness in me? Am I clinging to the righteousness of Jesus in my behalf? Is my life different because of him? Am I marked by mercy and purity and peace? And verse 25 says that I'm to come quickly 
come to terms quickly with my earthly accuser, but most importantly, with my heavenly accountability, with this judge and creator, with this sustainer, with the God of the universe. So if I claim personally to have a gospel experience with God, but I harbor unresolved sin, a murderous heart, and I'm unwillingly to urgently take action and obey Jesus' words, (laughs) then, then, then I'm not a follower of Christ. Not only am I not a follower, I'm in direct rebellion and opposition to God's clear calling on my life. I'm an unbeliever regardless of what I may say or where I attend church. In that point, my friends, we are no longer clinging to the righteousness of Christ, but we are depending upon and securing our eternal future and standing with God on our own righteousness. Verse 20, Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed the Pharisees to be right in God's eyes and to be with him intimately. So what's left? What's left for proud, arrogant hearts like the Pharisees and Matt Nagel? What's left? Well, it's only the consequence of a life and eternity apart from him. A place that Jesus compares to a burning ash heap outside of town. So we're left here, I'm left here, looking at this passage, looking at my murderous, angry heart, looking at the command of restoration and the call for urgent action, and we see rather quickly that Jesus' words and teaching exceed our capacity. I can't do it. Of course I'm angry. Didn't you see the roads on the way in and what the plow truck did? Of course I'm angry. The person at Walmart last night didn't know how to turn into a parking lot and my wife rebuked me. Of course I'm angry. Didn't you see what was posted on social media? Don't you see what's happening in the news? Of course I'm angry. I can't help it. And we often mask our anger as a righteous anger. But if we're honest, it's most often It's most often not. I can't do it. If this is you this morning, if you find yourself angry and you can't overcome it, I have great news for you. There is grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Here's how one writer frames it. The same Jesus who issues these commands He also blesses the poor in spirit. Those who are poor and see and admit their anger. Those who know they cannot obey. The same Jesus who issues these commands gave his life as a ransom for disciples who cannot obey him. Jesus also gives empowering grace. He sends his spirit to give us the capacity to begin at least to obey him. Yes, our obedience is always imperfect, but we can make progress. And our progress may be slow, but Jesus does work in our hearts. By his grace, we may obtain more of his righteousness than we currently see. My friends, faithful followers of Christ keep short accounts. 
If there's something in your life this morning, kids, parents, co-workers, extended family, siblings, especially siblings, if there's something in your life, take time even today to pursue unity with the God who made you and the people around you. Life is so short. Are there not so many stories, and every single one of us have one, where we have a fractured relationship with someone? We're angry towards them. We're too proud. We're too slow. We'll come here every single Sunday morning and bring our sacrifices to the altar of God, and yet we harbor anger and unresolved conflict in our life. Can I just encourage you that today is a really good day to talk to mom and dad? Today is a really good day to call your kids. Today is a really good day to text your coworker and apologize. Today is a really good day to bring your anger before the Lord and say, God, I'm in this crazy world. I have fractured relationships. Yeah, I admit it. I admit it. I am poor in spirit. I have a murderous heart and I need you. I think the Lord blesses that kind of obedience. So take time today to pursue unity with God and image bearers around you. Confess and turn away from your anger. We've been called to live out the policies of this kingdom and follow the commands of this king. So would you confess and pray with me that God would help us this week to believe this passage in his teachings and to actually live it. I want to read a prayer in closing here. A book of liturgies, and this, I've mentioned this before, it's called Every Moment Holy. And there's a liturgy for all kinds of things. And there's a prayer, there's a liturgy for a fleeting irritation and, ang- and uh, a moment of anger. So pray this with me, and I'll close this afterwards. I bring to you, Lord, my momentary irritation and anger, that you might reveal the buried seed of it, not in the words or actions of another person, but in the withered and hypocritical expectations of my own small heart. Uproot from this impoverished soil all arrogance and insecurity that would prompt me to dismiss or disdain others, judging them with a less generous measure than I reckon when judging myself. Prune away the tangled growth of my own unjustified irritations, Jesus, and graft to my heart instead your humility, your compassion, your patience, your kindness, that I might bear good fruit in keeping with your grace. Father, we come here this morning and we confess. We confess angry hearts. We may not think our irritability is murderous, but you do. God, we may justify our frustration in angry moments, and we confess that that is contrary to your clear teaching.
We confess that we often justify our anger by convincing ourselves it's righteous anger. God, we confess that we're angry with people and we aren't willing to settle it. We confess that we're all aware of fracturing in our lives and yet we come and we worship and we don't obey the verses we've just read. We confess that we're scared to leave the altar and go to our brother. And it's not just pride, but it's a fear of rejection. It's a fear of vulnerability. So God, we confess that we've been slow to obey you. We confess that we've failed to see our anger the same way that you do. God, we have murdered. So we confess our sin and we say we're sorry. And Father, we confess Christ, our Savior, the one who died and rose again to pay for our angry thoughts in words and actions. The one who lived a perfect life and took that life and cashed it in so that we could be forgiven of our anger. So God, unashamedly, we don't have to pretend we're more righteous than we are. We don't have to excuse our anger. We could admit to you and to everyone around us, we are struggling. We are angry. And in your grace, you sent your son to cleanse us, to forgive us, to renew us. So yes, we confess anger, but we confess the gospel. We confess that Jesus is enough. Help us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.